You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Bank angle, bank angle, caution, terrain, don't sink, don't sink, glide slow, pull up, wind shear, wind shear, sink rate, pull up, traffic, traffic. Okay, welcome back for another episode. This is an aviation history podcast, which looks at aviation accidents, incidents, disasters, and mere mishaps. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host. I'm the creator of the podcast series. I always have a a co-host who is not an aviation expert. Their role is to ask questions that will help you, the listener, better understand what actually happened. My co-host today is Mary, and uh, we had Mary in a previous episode. So, Mary, how are you? And start by telling everybody a little bit about yourself in case they didn't listen to the other one. Well, my first question was going to be, am I the host since you're at my house? Definitely. Okay. So we're here in Brooklyn, New York, Crown Heights to be specific. I'm not getting more specific than that. (laughs) I heard that this is actually a a special day, right? Yes. It's the 59th anniversary of the incident we're going to talk about. And it's in Brooklyn. That this happened. Well, it's, it specifically applies to New York. Yeah. Got it. So the New York area. And there are elements about Brooklyn in okay. here. Well, I have lived in New York for about four years, but I worked in the entertainment industry, which means I drove all around up into Yonkers, down into Long Island. I know Manhattan very well. And I've been to all three airports. So you're probably going to have an idea about what the areas that we're talking about here. Yes, I'll try to give slight context if needed. Oh, perfect. No, that's great because there probably will be some context needed. I'll do my best New York. Geographical context. Got it. (laughs) We don't need accents. I'm just kidding. I love your accents. It's fine. Well, I can't do much more than that. I can do coffee and that's it. (laughs) That's that's the extent of my accent work. So is there anything that uh, you want to update us on? Is there anything going on with you lately that you want to talk about or you want to just break right into it let's just dive right in let's just dive right in so it's the day it's the time it's the moment okay let's go so as you know i tell the events as a story and today i'm going to be telling you the story of two flights united 826 and twa 266 and am i correct in saying that this is our first dual flighted podcast this is this is our first dual flighted podcast and but you have no idea what this is going to be about no. Are you if ready you to get started? If you heard the one I was on before, and I'm not sure what order this will go up, I Was Angry was the one I was featured on previously. That was quite the hoot. Let's I'm curious where this one's going to go. And probably a little nervous. If you don't hear it in my voice, I know you could see it in my face. <laughs> but she's, she's a little nervous. There, I don't know where we're going to go from there. Okay, so we already said that it was 59 years ago yes. today. So December 16th, 1960. So we already know it's a crazy time of year for travel. Absolutely. So we're talking about the holidays. So let's start by talking about the airplanes. Okay. So United 826. It was a... Another United. An almost one-year-old Douglas DC-8. Baby. It was four-engine jet, mid to long range. It could fly to Europe from the East Coast without stopping. And it would fly around 32 to 33,000 feet, typically. It was a large aircraft for the time. feet? 32 to 33,000 feet. Oh. So it was... Sorry, that... You'll get some context on this. So we're basically talking about... It doesn't sound like a lot, but I'm sure it's a lot. 
So basically, we're talking about a first passenger jet. Okay. One of the very first passenger jets. But it was very heavy. It, ra- well, it weighed roughly 270,000 pounds. When you say jet, what is that difference to like an airplane? Quote so when we think about passenger airplanes today, we just think about jets. Okay. Our roots in aviation were propellers. So oh, so jets are engines. Jet is refers to the engine. Right. I did and, not know that. Okay. See, this so is we're why gonna, you have the person. Absolutely, and this is right, and this is why we're learning too. I love so, learning. So this required a flight crew of three people. So small. Actually, so it's the size of a modern jet. So you would re- you would look at that and you would think that doesn't look terribly old. Oh, a flight crew. Flight crew of three. Not the flight not attendants. The, right. Not including Got the, it. not including the cabin attendants. Okay. So the cabin had two seats on one side and three seats on the other side, okay? It was we long. Love an asymmetrical queen. It was long and it could seat 177. So it's pretty big. Got it. Okay, this guy's pretty big. Long aisle. Oh yeah. It's pretty huge. How many flight attendants? We we'll necessary. get there. To the untrained eye, you would look at it and you would think that looks a little old today. But once you notice, so the only thing that you would really notice was the engines well, were Well, it's 1960. Well, the engines are physically smaller, but it really looks like a jet. I mean, it looks like a jet liner. You can go to my Instagram page and have a look at it. Um, Pulling it up now? Yep, there it is. Old and new. So weird. The DC-8 was the second commercially successful jet airliner in the world. This United one is very sleek. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's sleek. After the Boeing 707. So it's Douglas Aircraft's answer to the Boeing 707. It was sold to its initial launch customers, United Airlines and Delta Airlines, in 1959. A total of 550 were built before they ended the production in 1972. It was as fast as a modern jetliner. Wow. It was a pioneering aircraft and was among the first aircraft to start the jet age as we know it. So prior to this, passengers mostly flew in aircraft driven by propellers. Which you have the... I am assuming the other plane that's also in this story below the picture of the United Correct. plane and that's it TWA has propellers on it. Correct. That's TWA 266. And three tail like fins? Yeah, what three tail fins. So, that, so they used to use uh, multiple tail fins to make it easier to put in a hangar so that the oh. tail wasn't so tall. It was wide, but they could just slide in the hangar. It really looks goofy though. It's really weird looking. Yeah, I agree. We're about to learn about that one. TWA-266 is a Lockheed Constellation. It was a propeller-driven four-engine airliner. Do the propellers have less power? Because they both have four engines. It's just sleeker yes. and more modern. It's It would go slower. It has less power. Okay. They're radial engines, actually, and they run on gasoline. So the engines mm. were also used on a few post-World War II bombers, the specific engines on the Lockheed Constellation. Got it. The Lockheed Constellation was originally built for the military military by the Hughes Tool Company of Houston. This is important. But it was quickly adopted by TWA in 1943. Later, the Hughes Tool Company sold the design to Lockheed. Okay. Here's why it's important. Because Hughes Tool Company was owned by Howard Hughes. Okay. So Howard Hughes was the CEO of TWA. So essentially, oh. <laughs> he designs an airplane <laughs> and then sells it, and to, sells it to himself. Yeah. Did he give himself a really good deal, family friend discount? <laughs> I'll bet he did. I'll bet he did. <sighs> I always do that with my business. <laughs> so it was a quickly adopted by TWA, obviously. It required a flight crew of five. Whoa. Yeah, so it was pressurized. It Why? was very comfortable, but it was slow. Okay, we're going to get to the flight crew. Oh, slow, so it took longer, so they had to it take did. more breaks. It was, well, no, actually. There were five. It required, let me scroll down here real quick. It needed a captain, a first officer, a flight engineer, a radio operator, and a navigator. Whoa. All in the cockpit. That's a party. That is a party. Okay, so there are five so, in there. <laughs> anyway, it's a, if it's a four, four people's a foursome, what's five? A party. Yeah, a party. 
Right. How that cockpit, it must be big. It was big, but it was also not super wide or anything. So it was okay. it was big, but it was pretty it was still pretty cramped. So it's probably guys. like two in the front, then maybe like three. Two in the side back. two side seats probably and then maybe a side seat. Well you said, the we already said it was asymmetrical. Yeah. No, the a, other one's oh, asymmetrical. No, this one is. No, wait, no, it's not. Yeah, what the other it? one is. The cockpit has two seats behind one of the pilots and then one what seat behind the other pilot. So it, it's Both it is really it's cra- it's very crowded in the cockpit. So it was pressurized. It was comfortable, but it was slow. It flew at about 24,000 feet. It carried enough fuel to fly for about 16 hours or 4,000 wow. miles. Actually, it had a similar range to the DC-8 we just talked about. So it had a similar range to the jet, but it took twice as long. But in that flight crew, there weren't any I- IOs? Uh, International Relief Officer? Yeah, IROs. No, no, because they had so many on board that they just kind of circulated and would share jobs. So that scares me because mm-hmm. I feel like those people need all different types of training. All different types of training and all different types of breaks and stuff like that. And like d- different lengths and things like that. Uh, absolutely. <sighs> I'm nervous already. Okay, so this airplane could seat between 30 and 100, depending on the configuration. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. I it, guess like first class and versus just... It could all be like a very first class or it could all be very compact. Okay. In the TWA so slightly outfit. slightly smaller than the other. The TWA outfit was 64 people. Okay. It was actually pretty roomy. It had two seats on each side of the aisle. Mm-hmm. It was comfortable, but by today's standard, we would consider it kind of cramped. We're also bigger humans today in general. We are, but this was not, the tube was not very big on okay. this. So like the height of the cabin was not But this is a slightly older model airplane anyway. This is really old. It was designed in 1943. So it would be like if we were flying in a plane from the 80s right now, kind of. Yeah, well, you would feel like if you went to be, like an airplane from the 70s. You could tell it was a little older. Yeah, right. So this is one of the very last propeller-driven airliners in commercial use in the United States. The last Constellation was banned from flying commercially mm. in the United States in 1992. Ooh. It was owned by a Cuban airline, but it was banned in 1992. So the Lockheed's Constellation is a really cool airplane. They made it in many, many variants, and it still holds the world record for the longest nonstop commercial flight. Wow. Even the one today that's like 20 hours? It flew from London to San Francisco. It took 23 hours and 19 minutes to do that yeah so we remember four engines yeah we remember we said on the we said on a previous episode that the longest flight was 20 hours it was just over 20 hours and it was london to sydney so you can see how much slower this is oh yeah i guess i hadn't thought about that they are going at a slower speed so much slower so there's a fully restored non-flying model at the jfk airport in front of the twa hotel that's there Mm -hmm. and you can go see it it's Cute. really cool. It's absolutely beautiful. They did a beautiful job of restoring it. It's non-flying, but it's beautiful. That's awesome. So those are the airplanes. So old and new. Got it. Okay. The and operators, they look very different. They look very different. The first operator of the DC-8, that's United Airlines. It's a major US airline headquartered. We talked about this in the that last episode we did. Yeah. Headquartered at Willis Tower, which is formerly the Sears Tower in Chicago, Illinois. Today, it's the third largest airline in the world. Back in 1960, United Airlines was an international carrier and one of the first adopters of jet airliners helping to usher in the the jet age with this plane with the dc-8 that we just saw yep united has had a jet fleet at the time that was only two years old oh i mean air travel in general wasn't as old like that old it wasn't air travel in general wasn't that old but now we we literally have only had commercial jets for two years at this point yeah and now we fly the same jets that have been around for 20 30 years absolutely yeah 
So United Airlines is still operating today, the third largest airline in the world behind American and Delta. The other airline, Transworld Airlines. Yeah, I'm curious TWA. about these guys. Because I know nothing. I know some about United because we've covered United. I fly them to my parents who live in Knoxville, Tennessee, because they just are normally the cheapest out right. of New York, and right. their base is New York. So I know a little bit about United. I've never heard of, of these other people. Well, United is a, one of the airlines that's been around for a really long time. Yeah, and TWA was one of the first airlines. Are they still around? Let's find out. Okay. So Transworld Airlines, TWA, was a major uh, American airline that existed from 1930 until 2001. It originally operated routes from New York to Los Angeles via St. Louis and Kansas City and a few other stops. Along with United. The stops because you had to refuel or No, they would just stop off. and drop people off. Yeah. Like so bus. along with United, American and Eastern Airlines... It was one of the big four airlines at the time in 1960. Now infamous Howard Hughes acquired control of TWA in 1939. And after World War II, he led the expansion of the airlines to serve Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. And in fact, at the time, it was only one of two airlines that were allowed to operate globally. Wow. What the was, the, the other was United? Pan Am. Oh, okay. The other one was Pan Am. It just wasn't one of the big four. Got it. And then TWA was headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. And that was their major international hub. Can you imagine St. Louis, Missouri being a major international hub? Well, from what I've heard from the podcasts, these podcasts, a lot of these hubs are just in places where there's space. Yeah. But their to- other major international hub was JFK. Oh, oh, you mean hub. Yeah. Like- so there so basically what I'm saying is TWA was that was where they were based. Okay. It was St. Louis. And their other and their major international hub, right? They have the arch. Was JFK. The 1970s and 80s were really tough on TWA. They filed for bankruptcy twice, and actually went from a public company to a private company. But in 2001, TWA filed for a third and final bankruptcy. American Airlines bought them. And they laid off all the remaining TWA employees. Hopefully with a great severance package. Probably not. Because bankruptcy. Yeah. And 2001 was really hard on the airlines after That a- makes a lot of sense. 9/11. They closed so this. When, they, go ahead. So when American Airlines bought the, they just basically took on their debt and, by taking their They planes. took their planes. They took on their debt and they pretty much laid off all the, most of the old TWA employees. They this closed. This and then, is fun. And then they closed the St. Louis operation um, in 2003 dealing a major blow to St. Louis as a city. Yeah, all they have now is the art. Isn't that and where Starbucks TWA came from? was a big, big airline and they were in St. Louis and it's kind of like it's like kind of like Denver today. So many United employees work in Denver. If United was just to close in Denver, be it'd it, just be potheads. So yeah, pretty much. <laughs> there would just be so many employees just su- suddenly out of work. So that sucks. Okay, so the crew. So if you listen to the other episodes, you know that I don't use the names of the crew. I don't get into their personal lives unless it matters. Okay. In this case, it doesn't matter. The crew of uh, United 826, the DC-8, it consisted of three crew members, a captain, a first officer, and a flight engineer, which is normal. Okay. The crew of the TWA-266, which you asked about before, that consisted of five, a captain, a first officer, a flight engineer, a radio operator, and a navigator. All in the cockpit. Okay. I mean, in theory, that's great because the no one person is dividing their attention too much. So in this case, what it speaks to is the complexity of operating the aircraft. So these older planes were more difficult. Well, there was no automated systems. Right. In your bio, at the beginning of this podcast, we learned you've flown a lot of different types of planes. And I know you've right. flown like 757s and that's a bunch of flips and switches. And now the 787 is basically a bunch of screens. Yes, it's much more automated 
so half the things that I did in the 757, I don't do in the 787. Right. And then if I go back to the beginning jets I flew, you had to do so many things manually. And if you keep going back, there were so many jobs that they actually had to break them up into more people. Right. You can't have somebody looking at the map the whole time and fly. Right. And and you're, it's not only looking at the map, but it's like tuning all the navies. Right. And then the other guy's balancing the fuel. More and flips and switches. That, and he's, yeah, and he's messing with that. And it, it was so much manual that they had to break it up into multiple jobs. Okay, so you ready to get into the incident? I'm not sure I am, but I'm not going anywhere. So if you keep talking, right. I'll so be fine. Right, so you're just going to be stuck here if I keep talking. Yeah. So do you have any questions about the companies or the airplanes so far? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think the fact that there are five people is crazy. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it just it speaks to the age of the airplane, yeah. basically. So the incident. These are just two very different planes. Yes. Um, So TWA Flight 66 is the Lockheed Constellation, the old one. It departed Port Columbus, Ohio at 9 a.m. And it was bound for New York LaGuardia Airport. Had five pilots, three flight attendants, and 36 passengers on board. So this was one of the more spread out layouts. Yeah, and it's only half loaded. Okay. 36 people. The total on board, including the crew, was 44. At around the same time, 9-11 a.m., United Airlines Flight 826, a Douglas DC-8 aircraft, the jet that we talked about, departed Chicago O'Hare with three pilots, four flight attendants, and 77 passengers. Okay. Right. Uh, This flight was bound for... So that means they're like a third empty. They have 100 empty seats. So they, they have could, way more seats. Than they I could thought. seat 177. Wow! So they both of these flights are pretty empty. Pretty much half full. I feel like you never see that anymore. You don't. No. Now computers. I guess this, now computers figure out the algorithm. It was so such a new thing as well. It probably wasn't affordable for a lot of people. It wasn't, and in fact, I don't go into this, but the government at the time actually regulated the fares. Interesting. Of, the government actually set the rate for the fares on flights. And so that they wouldn't like be crazy expensive or what? Actually, it was to make sure that the airlines continued to fly and the flights were expensive. Oh, they so were there more wasn't expensive. as now, much competition. Be- so they weren't competing for like, you know, selling that $59 ticket. Hmm. They just had to sell a ticket just for a certain a amount. Time. Yep, it was just a different time. The government was far more involved. Reagan got his hand into the airlines in 1980 and deregulated them. Mm. So then all the fares became capitalist mess instead Making of- Making money right. for one person that, or two. Right, exactly. But that's also why mm-hmm. the, the capacities of the airplanes expanded and the yeah. seats all got smaller. Yeah. So back in these days, you would get in and a coach seat would look like a kind of like a first class seat today. Wow. With plenty of room. Okay. So it leaves Chicago O'Hare, three pilots, four flight attendants, 77 passengers. The flight was bound for New York Idlewild Airport. What? What is that? Now known as JFK. Oh, I guess we didn't have... JFK. JFK. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I hadn't even like thought about that yet. Say the name again. New York Idlewild. Idlewild. What is that from? Do you know? I don't know, but it is JFK. It, the now is on the grounds of the now JFK airport. Probably much smaller. Um, also of the time. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. Uh, I'm sure it was smaller. It need to handle less traffic, so I'm sure it was smaller. So we already have both Queens airports in this time. Right. So Laguardia. Go going to either one. Going to Laguardia. Going to JFK. So in theory, these planes shouldn't interact with each other they shouldn't so the weather in new york city this day 59 years ago it's december it's cloudy it's cold there's sleet there's snow and low visibility yeah we had our first snow like two days ago right it's a yucky winter day in the big apple at approximately 8 12 the new york air traffic control 
was contacted by the United 826 flight, the DC-8. And this is the one that took off at like nine. Correct. Out of Chicago. So not so far. So it's coming from Chicago. It's about two hour flight. So he's cleared from 31,000 feet down to 25,000 feet. And the New York Center advises United 826, the clearance limit is Preston intersection. Let me Let me decode this. So, Clearance, I understood, and intersection, I understood, but right. not in the context of planes. So let me tell you the rest of the verbiage, and then we'll go and decipher that. So basically, he says the clearance limit is Preston. The route takes them across Allentown, then Robbinsville, New Jersey, which is down by Trenton yeah. in eastern New Jersey, and then maintain flight level 250, which is 25,000 feet. Okay. okay. And this is like final descent. Which is like the ha- last half hour or so of the Yeah, flight. exactly. Last half hour. Yep. So they're at 25,000 feet and they're coming down and their clearance limit is Preston. So clearance limit means they have to stop at Preston. Okay. Okay. It's an intersection. Basically, an intersection is like if you took a flashlight and kind of pointed a beam this way and somebody else stood over the other side and pointed a beam the other way, where they where intersect they would be the intersection. And pilots can read that by gauges in the cockpit. Okay. So this Basically. is where two planes are intersecting? No, two airways. Okay, so, so like just the, the flight path that these planes take every time. Because I do know that there's some fact where it's like planes fly within like 20 yards of their flight path. Each time. Each time. Like it's... It is like a road. It is very much like a road. And this is basically the intersection of two roads. Okay. That's all we're talking about. And he's only allowed to go there and then he has to hold. He has to stop. How do you hold? Oh, sorry. How do you hold in midair? Do you? So you just do racetrack patterns. So you just do what? ovals. That's. You just do an oval. You fly to the intersection, Is that and then you turn and do you do an now? oval. Yeah. Yes, but we don't do it often because back then they did a lot. Okay, because it's they something didn't I've comp- never noticed. They didn't really have com- right. It is gotten less less and less common because we didn't have computers. Mm. Now we have flow control. So they'll like slow us down. They'll delay our departure to keep us from holding because holding is a huge waste of fuel. But back yeah. then they didn't care and they also didn't have the technology. Right. This so, was the only option. Basically. This was the option. Yeah. So it's basically like sort of like sitting at a traffic light a little bit longer. Except for you can't stop. You're yeah, you can't stop. You just have to go around in a circle. That's basically it. You're just going around a circle. So he clears them out of 25,000 feet. And 10 minutes later, New York Air Traffic Control offers United 826, basically a shortcut that doesn't take them over eastern New Jersey anymore and kind of takes them directly to the Preston intersection. Okay. And they can find it and it's no big deal. And which one was that? I'm sorry. That was the United. So we haven't gotten to the TWA flight. So the United is now offered a shortcut and they're kind of just going direct to the Preston intersection where they're supposed to hold. This route Why shortened. Why would they take a shortcut if they have to hold? I that don't might really. not be important. It's it's not important. It's just what I don't they really were know. Told to do. It's, yeah, that's it. Okay. Just that's what air traffic control them, control told them to do. Uh, this route shortened the distance by about 11 miles. Hmm. Okay. The flight was then cleared down to 11,000 feet and they were told then to descend and maintain 5,000 feet. This is post the Preston intersection? This is pre. Pre. Still. So they're still, still kind of approaching it, right? Yep. And the center asks United 826, can you make Preston at 5,000? Okay, can you basically descend quickly enough to be at 5,000? And the United and replies- And they've already been descending at this point. They've been descending the whole time. And so they kind of have, they have an idea whether they can or can't. And the United says that they'll try. And at 832, the controller hmm. says, United 826, if holding is necessary at Preston, the only holding- Hold south, and the only holding will be for the descent. So basically what he's saying is, if you can't make Preston at 5,000 feet, enter the holding pattern until you're at 5,000 feet. Okay. So basically he's like going to bring him down. 
He's just going to let him descend while they do circles. Just sl- so he's still descending just slower. So he's going to slow down and he's going to descend instead of overshooting the point. Right? He wants him. Got it. He wants him at the Preston intersection, which is kind of this intersection in the middle of nowhere, at 5,000 feet. And if he can't make it there, he's going to have to like make him do racetrack patterns until he can get to 5,000 feet. That's the point. Right. Because he he has to be at 5,000 when he gets depressed. Correct. So one minute later, he instructs um, the United DC-8, Flight 826, to contact the Idlewild Approach Control. So call the JFK. Okay. Okay. And the pilots, the pilots misunderstood, and I don't think it's very clear. Basically, what happens is the controller messes up and gives them a gives them um, a frequency change. The pilots think that they are cleared to pass the Preston intersection if they're at five thousand feet, but they're not. They're cleared to hold at Preston at five at five thousand feet. So the controller's not very clear. Okay. And they misunderstand. Mm. Okay. And then before they can clear it up, so they think they're at a green light when they should be at a red light. At a red light. Basically, what happens is then before they can clarify, the controller says. Go ahead and call the Idle Wild Approach Controllers. So go ahead and call JFK Tower, basically. Right. So we're done talking to the person giving us instructions. Right. Because he thinks he's clear and it's fine. And now he says, okay, go ahead and call those guys. Now, the guy who handed him off says, okay, you're holding at Preston at 5,000 feet. So now go ahead and call JFK when you're holding at 5,000 feet. The pilots think... We're cleared to cross Preston. As long as we're at 5,000 feet, we're good. And we'll call the other tower. Right. Okay. So at the same time, the TWA-266, the Lockheed Constellation, was heading in the direction of Staten Island. Mm. Okay. They're preparing for an approach and landing at LaGuardia. The flight was descending to 5,000 feet as well. They're advised of traffic at 2.30 off their right. So 2.30 like a clock. So Traffic being the United flight. Off their right. Six miles. Just guessing. Six miles from them and northbound. They couldn't see it. They're in the clouds. So now both airplanes are in the clouds. But six miles is not very far. No. And the traffic was the United 826, which, by the way, is still traveling at over 300 miles an hour. So now it's worth noting that... So if you're going 60 miles an hour and you're going six miles, that's six minutes. You're going 300 miles an hour. You're covering roughly... Like 120 seconds, maybe? You're covering roughly three miles a minute, a little more than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going a little faster than that. You're covering about two and a half miles a minute. It's worth noting that the DC-8... Little correction time. The DC-8 wasn't supposed to be there mm-hmm. at that time. And the DC-8 crew was talking to a different controller than is talking to the 266 flight. Because they're going to two different airports. Yeah. 266 is talking to LaGuardia. Yeah. And 826 uh, is talking to JFK Idlewild. Right. Okay, before JFK. So next, the LaGuardia controller tells the TWA. And they're both in Queens, but they're literally on opposite sides of No, at this point, they're over land. at... No, I'm talking about the airports. The airports, yes. Like, the, when you say Queens, they're both in Queens, but it's like they're on... They're far apart, but not in the relevance of, like, flying. This, I'm just freaking out a little already. <laughs> <laughs> so it's worth noting that at this time there wasn't a speed limit below below 10,000 feet. Now there is a speed limit below 10,000 feet. So you would have to be going 250 knots below 10,000 okay. feet. Now there's no speed limit below 10,000 because we just got jets. Yeah. Airplanes really didn't go that fast. And one of these isn't even a jet. The other one's so not a jet. they can't even go that fast. Right. So they have more correction time, but still not much. The DC-8 is not being warned of the TWA because they're on a different frequency. Right. But the TWA is being warned of the DC-8. Right. But there's okay. already been a miscommunication there. 
and they are also in the clouds. So nobody can yeah. see nobody can see each other. Then the controller says TWA two sixty six. That appears to be jet traffic off your right now three o'clock and one mile. So put out your right arm and that's mm-hmm. three o'clock. Mm-hmm. Okay. One mile out. At an altitude of approximately 5,200 feet, the farthest right engine of the, the United DC-8 sliced open the top of the fuselage, mm. the tube where the people are, mm. of the TWA constellation. Okay, so I'm going to give a graphics warning right now. Which you have one at the I stars. do, but this, this, gets a little, this gets a little gruesome, so just follow along. It kills several passengers instantly. At least one passenger is ingested by the number four mm. engine on the DC-8. Oh, my God. The engine is made of titanium. It slices through the aluminum structure of TWA-266. The engine in the section of wing outside the engine, about a third of the right wing of the DC-8 is severed. The constellation, the fuselage, the passenger compartment is torn open. Mm. One third of the tail is ripped off and the aircraft breaks up into three sections. Which one breaks into three sections? I'm sorry. I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. Okay, let's go back. Do you want me to read it again? Start in the middle, because you. Okay. I remember the fact that it's aluminum, and you've talked about this in other podcasts. It, like, it has to be because it has to go in the air. Because it's light. But it is not crash yeah. And the wing and the engine of the DC-8 is made of titanium. Yeah. It slices through the aluminum structure of the TWA-266 constellation. Uh, the engine and the section of the wing outside the engine on the DC-8 is severed. So the DC-8 now has about two-thirds of one wing, and it has lost an engine. The constellation had its fuselage, its passenger compartment, torn open. About one-third of its tail ripped off, and the aircraft then breaks into three sections. So the older plane is gone, basically. The largest part of the TW- of TWA-266 was the passenger compartment and the wing, and they were still attached together. That means that the wreckage began a tight spiral, (gasps) and it ejects passengers as it spins down because the top's ripped off. As this is happening, the TWA controller is... I'm sorry, I'm just thinking, you know those like plants with the seed on one end and the wing on the other? Uh That's exactly what's going on. Yes. That's exactly what's going on. You still with me? I'm here. So as this happens, the LaGuardia controller is recorded as saying, I think we have trouble here with the Connie. He's not moving or anything. He might have got hit by another airplane. Because LaGuardia is the one that was saying you have something at your three o'clock. Right, because LaGuardia controllers were the one that were that were so talking saw to it them. Coming. They did. And, and the they're con- just not moving because they're not going laterally now. They're going down. So the controller is correct. <sighs> the Connie is broken into pieces and all the pieces land in a field in Staten Island, <sighs> narrowly missing a neighborhood of wooden houses and a school. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> there's no... Wow, it's so hard to read. No real good part of that, but that's a small consolation that it missed, that the wreckage did nothing. Right, so along with the wreckage were the offending pieces of the DC-8, the engine and the wing. It left no doubt as to what had happened. Yeah. Okay. In-flight fire had broken out on both aircraft, as determined by the soot trails on the paint, all 44 people on the TWA flight were killed. I told I you this need- was going to be a tough one. The New York Times wrote, witnesses said the blood-drenched snow and bodies made them think of a oh battlefield. My God. The investigation reported that many people died as a result of the fall and several bodies had to be removed from s- surrounding trees. Like the therapy you would need if you lived in that neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, this is just post-war. I mean, this is relatively close to post-war. That's hard to hear. That's hard to read. But 
that happened. And so it's, it's part of aviation history. And so, you know, we kind of pick ourselves up and move on. Learn. Yeah. Learn, learn from what happened. Okay. So let's continue. The rest is equally as hard. So the DC eight continues for another eight miles. It's still wow. moving quickly. The pilots are, are fighting. So Go ahead. None of the compartment is compromised yet in the United flight. No, it's the United DC is still. And it, uh, or just a uh, wing and uh, one of the engines. Yeah. And one of the engines. The one very of four. Yes. Okay. But remember that I just said that both aircraft um, had damage from in-flight fire. I'm not forgetting. So they're both on fire. So like we said, the DC-8 continued for another eight miles. It's still moving quickly. The pilots are fighting to control the hopelessly damaged and burning aircraft. The flaming DC-8 crashed in the Park Slope neighborhood in Brooklyn at the intersection of 7th and Sterling Place, scattering wreckage and setting a seven-alarm fire to 10 brownstones. (sighs) One had a section of wings sticking out of the roof. Wow. The Pillar of Fire Church, which burned to the ground. A funeral home, a Chinese laundry, and a deli. I'm just thinking about all of my friends who live there in that neighborhood. I mean... Yeah, this is tough to hear. I understand. I was there the other day. Six people on the ground were killed. Of the 84 people on the United DC-8, 83 were dead at the scene. Of the six on the ground, three remained unaccounted for until the wreckage had been removed. Eyewitnesses said that people rushed out of their houses and began pulling people from the flaming wreckage long before emergency services could arrive. Oh, man. Three people were transported by helicopter to a hospital in Manhattan. Two were DOA. Okay, at this point, I'm going to stop reading. I'm going to hand this to Mary, and she's going to read the rest. The reason is I have a 10-year-old daughter, and uh, this is too emotionally hard for me to read. So here you go. Start with the right at the end of the top line. The sole survivor was an 11-year-old boy, Stephen Baltz, from a Chicago suburb. His jet fuel cover flaming clothing were exhausted by residents who rolled him in a snowbank where the boy was found after being ejected from the very back row of the aircraft during the crash. A woman stood over and talked to him, placing her jacket over him and held an umbrella to keep him from the falling snow while residents brought blankets. He had severe burns on his body and face. And had inhaled flaming fuel. According to the New York Times, he was awakening good spirits, talking about what happened in a very lucid way, saying, quote, I remember looking out the plane window at the snow below covering the city. It looked like a picture out of a fairy book. Then all of a sudden there was an explosion. The plane started to fall and people started to scream. I held onto my seat and the plane crashed. That's all I remember until I woke up, end quote. His mother and sister, who who had traveled that day before to visit the family, were at his bedside when he died the next day around 10 a.m., almost exactly 24 hours after later as a result of his internal and external burns. Do you want to take over at that paragraph? Yeah, sure. I can read that. I just can't read that other piece. By the end of that day, the accident had claimed either 133 or 134 lives. There are conflicting numbers uh, for the people on the United 826, including the six people on the ground. Up to that date, this was the largest crash by number of deaths. Now it barely ranks in the top 20. Wow. As hard as this is, and we like took a moment and considered not finishing this, but I really think, I mean, I uh, am a person who listens to tragedy a lot, like true crime. It's something that happens. 
and did happen. And it's part of our history. It's part of our history. And even with all that tragedy, it's amazing to think about those residents of the neighborhood who came together and did what they could. So as a result of this, everybody sued everyone. Wow. I couldn't find the settlement figure, but it was well into the tens of millions of dollars. United Airlines was found negligent in order to pay 61%. TWA was ordered to pay 15%. And the Civil Aviation Authority, the FAA at the time, paid the remaining 24%. Residents of Park Slope were given settlements of approximately $3,000, which is worth about $25,000 in today's money. So some residents went crazy and they spent their windfall while others said that it was never even close enough to allowing them to recover. So this is the official cause. The CAA, which is what the FAA was called at the time, found that the cause was that United 826 flew past the point where it should have stopped and it did it at too high of a speed, uh, which reduced the estimated separation of the aircraft, right? So they didn't have enough space between them. But like all things, I found articles saying the cause was a mystery. It was not a mystery. It sounds like it was miscommunication and an accident. It was miscommunication. The United Pilots didn't do it on purpose. It was nobody's real fault. So basically, they flew past the Preston intersection. They thought they were still approaching the Preston intersection, which was an honest mistake. And the TWA just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's basically what happened. It's just the worst possible outcome for an honest mistake. So that's the story. But there's a happy ending. Well, there's a lot of evidence that as a result of the crash, Park Slope, which had been a neighborhood in steep decline, underwent an urban renewal and began the slow gentrification that describes Brooklyn even 60 years later. The buildings and the church were replaced with modern high-rise condos Mm. that are still there. Several sources said the crash rallied the community and changed the attitude of steady decline into one of preservation. Wow. Particularly, and this is interesting, The destruction of the Pillar of Fire Church. The church itself had been a point of contention in the community as it had been a gathering point and a vocal supporter of the KKK, beginning way back in the 1920s. Wow. They supported the Klan for many years leading up to the crash. It was a Pentecostal church, and its founder held strong racist, anti-Catholic, and anti-Semitic views. I found reference to the community being better off without it, but put more eloquently than that. So there's a real possibility that the destruction of this church actually united Brooklyn. Wow. That's so, amazing. Yeah, that's really, it's, it's really amazing. It's and an amazing story. As somebody who's lived in Brooklyn for four years, have met people who've grown up in Brooklyn, and they've talked about Park Slope 20 years ago and what it was compared to what it is to get today. And it's still growing and expanding and so at the time even it was, into further parts of Brooklyn. Right. So at the time it was a neighborhood in steep decline. Yeah. And it was seriously a, a problem. And for a church to be in the middle of Brooklyn and hold racist, anti-Semitic Ugh. and anti-Catholic views in Brooklyn, I mean, that's pretty serious. Yeah. I'm just shaking my head right now. Right. Because it's because Brooklyn is full of African-Americans. It's full of the Jewish community. It's the heart of the Jewish community. It's full of, I mean, that is what Brooklyn is. It's full of all different types of people. The neighborhood I live in is is the ending point for the, the West Indies Festival every year. Brooklyn is culture. I'm sure that this hate getting canceled out as horrifically as it did allowed for that culture to continue. To flourish. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about uh, what happened as a result of the incident, okay? Uh, So the short-term effects of this crash were relatively negligible. A few years after that, they got a speed limit below 10,000. We talked about that. 
Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, the accident brought to light that the U.S. was still working with a pre-World War II air traffic system, but in a jet age. Okay. Right. And this was now like in the art and architecture and everything else, like postmodern at this point, and then oh. we're still using propellers. Absolutely. Definitely. And this and was prob- the biggest fucking wake-up call you could get. Absolutely. And, impro- and improvements such as enhanced and modern radar, which by the way existed at the time, mm. really needed to be used in civil aviation and it wasn't being because if you're just aviation. looking at a map and yeah, flipping switches and not actually like and, and actually the equipment they were using were was super old radar yeah. and stuff like that that they really and and also it, it's important to note that the LaGuardia tower couldn't talk to the Idlewild tower to the JFK tower yeah they couldn't talk that seems like the same like confusion I have when I hear true crime stories where police districts don't talk to each other. Right, exactly. Like you're in the same business. Right, like get with the times. Right. Communicate. So the controllers um, should have been able to talk. No direct changes happened as a, as a result of this crash, but it did start a, a very effective ripple effect mm-hmm. that cascaded over the system and said we can't operate these jets that are super high speed right. number one without speed limits but number two without safety with without more safety and better mm-hmm. modern equipment so what's changed since it's going to be hard for me to tell you everything that changed since but i'll try okay yeah. so radar systems now are excellent right the biggest change though is with the tcas we have a traffic alert and a resolution alert advisories that's now on aircraft they communicate the airplanes communicate directly with each other they don't use a ground facility and i remember that from one of your other ones i think but it was running into something else not into the ground right that was gave a right it was that was maybe just 20 30 years later that gave a minute or two of heads up and these people, they literally said, you have a plane on your three o'clock and then it happened. And then it happened. There's no time. And that is why the the modern equipment has to talk. It literally communicates directly airplane to airplane. It does not talk through Good. the ground or the controller. So they talk directly to each other and the aircraft issues solid, consistent advisories. So in this case, the TWA would get a alert that sounds like descend descend now and the right. united would get an alert that says climb climb mm. now I think they work together they work together they work opposite of each other see so that po- is that is what makes that is what makes right. it safe today this podcast gives me anxiety but it also gives me some reassurance because they obviously make changes and i'm sure there are stories where it's people and they have things go wrong and they just ignore it for as long as possible to save money or what save face or whatever. But it sounds like this was not one of those cases and no. they learned. So the aircraft talked to each other. Let me just say in short that in modern era, this would be almost impossible to happen. Yeah, it would be almost like impossible it. for this to happen in the modern time. So, you know, you can you can rest assured. Yeah. Aircraft also now transmit a lot of data to ground facilities. They also use the signals to track airplanes with incredible accuracy. Then they re-upload the data to the aircraft for increased safety. 
It's sort of like yeah. mandatory crowdsourcing. So all the airplane, all the airplanes now are equipped with equipment that sends their data to the ground and mm-hmm. then the ground sends the data back up to all the aircraft. Yeah. So everybody knows where everybody is yeah. all the time. These are the times where I'm happy when our evolution has taken us to technology versus other things. I'm like, I'm yeah. glad our technology is really good. So the speed limits were put in place for all aircraft under 10,000 feet, like we talked about, to allow more time in dense airspace, especially in dense airspace. Right. That's it. So that's the whole podcast. Is is there anything that you want to talk about or do you need to see a therapist? Well, really I'm definitely going to have a hard time going to sleep, but I do think this was important to talk about and remember And as a person who lives in Brooklyn, I'm glad I now know this story. And I want to go see that memorial. There's a small memorial there, yeah. Yeah, and will you remind us where that is? Yes, it is. Was it 7th and Sterling? Correct. That was 7th and Sterling Place. Park Slope? In Park Slope, yep. Take the 3-4, get off, walk a good 10 minutes, you'll be there. And I don't know if this is still the case, but there was a piece of the DC-8 missing that Mm. they never found. That's weird. And so it's lost in Brooklyn somewhere. I don't know if it was ever found. So that's kind of a mystery. they had a plane sticking out of somebody's house. So it maybe just fell on somebody's roof. It could have also just burned up in a fire or something. So I mean, jet fuel burns really hot really hot and aluminum it burns jet fuel burns hotter than aluminum melts oh wow yeah, yeah. so so it would have it's maybe gone <laughs> so it could have been potentially gone right let me read my sources for this so my sources the most accurate source i got was the new york new york times archive uh time magazine mm-hmm. december 27th 1969 the park slope reader archive Uh, The CAA, which is the FAA at the time, the official report, which is, by the way, a very difficult read, but also very, very technical. And it is like 45 pages long. And Wikipedia provided basic information. And then they provided the reference material that I use above. That's my sources. Wow. That was quite the story. You need a tissue. I know. I hope I didn't annoy anyone with my sniffling. All right. Well, thanks. And I uh, hope you guys Ugh. tune back in. That was a really hard one to listen to. I think it's important to look at hard, all the, but Im- yeah, it's important. important to look at all the air disasters. So we'll do some funny ones. We'll do some hard ones and we'll just continue to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Mary. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, hosting me here in Brooklyn. And um, I don't know if I can say thank you back <laughs> on this one, but want to go to Park Slope? Yeah, let's go look. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Bye-bye.